0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer-engineer J.J. Blair. First of all, Apple Music has hit 30 million paid subscribers. They're actually doing about 15 million a year right now, or that's what the average is. And since last December, they've done about 10 million subscribers. In other words, they increased by 10 million So, this sounds like it's pretty good on the surface, except that Spotify is averaging about 20 million per year now. And they're at about 60 million plus paid subscribers. So, you have Spotify at 60 million and Apple at 30. So, what is Apple doing to overcome this? Well, they're promoting artists and they're putting a lot of money into the promotion of particular artists, mostly stars. So they have podcasts, radio shows, documentaries, just active artist promotion. Now when you look at it, Apple has 800 million credit cards on file and they only have 30 million subscribers to Apple Music. That's only 4%, so there's a lot of room for growth. Where we actually see this is the fact that Goldman Sachs recently came out with a study that predicted that the music business would grow to $41 billion just from streaming by the year 2030. Now, keep in mind that the biggest year ever for the music business was in 1999 and that was only 27 billion. So Goldman really thinks that it's going to expand and expand by a lot in that period of time and mostly from streaming. So now we're maybe at 120 million paid subscribers for streaming worldwide. It's a drop in the bucket and it looks like it's going to explode. At least all the predictions are that way and if you look at the numbers, it's actually going that way where there's a lot more activity In the streaming world, and it's starting to pay off big time, as we just saw from some recent articles about Ed Sheeran, for instance, where he's making a huge amount of money just from Spotify alone. So it can be done. I know there are many people out there that are non-believers. Every time I post something about Spotify numbers on one of my blogs... I get a series of people claiming that I'm committing blasphemy and streaming is the devil. However, there's lots of money being made and there's more and more money being made every day. The pie is getting bigger and that's a good thing for the music industry. have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. The second edition of my Social Media Promotion for Musicians Handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online, and covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion. Also, check out my courses at BobbyOsinskiCourses.com. Now there's another exciting breakthrough that was reported last week. Light was being stored as sound on a computer chip, on a processor. Why is that important? Well it turns out that light is too fast for most processors. The ideal method of processing and storage is using light instead of electrons. Electrons cause a lot of friction so there's heat. Electrons are also subject to to outside electromagnetic interference, which again, you don't get that with light. So why wouldn't we just store light? Well, right now it's too fast. And the processors just can't retrieve it in a way that's accurate. So it has to be slowed down. So what the University of Sydney has done is figure out how to change light into sound to slow down the processing by about five times. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at it, What this is actually creating is a delay line so what you're having is light on a chip passes through in about two to three nanoseconds or so audio is at 10 nanoseconds so the retrieval is much more accurate not only that using this particular method you can have multiple lanes of storage because different frequencies would actually be different levels of storage and processing so this is pretty exciting what it's going to mean is at some point in time we're going to have computers that are going to be smaller lighter are going to have no heat at all and no outside interference and it's just going to make our computing lives a whole lot better you'd think that by now our computing lives are pretty good as compared to the way they were 10 years ago but you know what going to be better in the future my guest today is grammy winning producer engineer jj blair who has a wide variety of credits that go from johnny cash to rod stewart to weezer to the black-eyed peas and many more JJ's an avid microphone collector, and we spoke about his collection, as well as his opportunity to play with The Who, which, boy, that sounds like a dream. Sounds pretty cool. The Who is one of my favorite bands, and just the thought about playing with them kind of blows my mind, and JJ will tell you what happened in his case. I spoke with him via phone from his studio in the Hollywood Hills. Let's start from the beginning here. I want to know about your journey in the music business. How did you get into the business in the first place?
1: Well, uh, I think I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do, you know, make records. Um, I mean, as a teenager, I had a, you know, I started off, uh, bouncing back and forth between cassette players. You know, I just kind of had discovered that on my own that like, oh, I can, you know, overdub onto something I'm recording, you know, and and go to the other cassette player. Then eventually I got the, uh, what is it? The, the, I have it sitting right here, actually. My original, uh, Tascam Porta 05. Oh, wow. Um, that, that I got at some point. And then, you know, I, I think I would graduated to the Tascam 388. And, and, uh, I, uh, when I pretended to go to college for five minutes, I took the, uh, recording class there with a, you know, with a, and, and, and was fortunate enough to, uh, have been taught the fundamentals of recording that uh, I wish more people knew about that were being exposed to the tools these days. Mm. Amen to that. Yeah. you know, so, I mean, just simple concepts like phase. Uh, yeah. But um, then I moved to L.A. in, I think, when I was 20. And uh, it was strange because, you know, I hadn't come through... I didn't even know that, you know, there were these recording schools and stuff like that. So I had been trying on my own through some friends to get, you know, I I would have loved to become a runner in one of the studios or something. And that just, and I I just didn't know anybody that could, you know, make those introductions. And I would get uh, a lead to go, you know, well, this guy's looking for an assistant and I'd show up and they're like, oh, you know, well, we're going to give it to the guy who knows how to make the martini. (laughs) <laughs> which is a true story <laughs> I a to the guy who had to make a martini, <laughs> which I certainly didn't. And I was even trying to get it, you know, I was even applying for a job at Rocket Cargo. I was just anything that I could do to get me into recording studios. Because when I had gotten out of a grip in Chicago, when I'd gotten out of uh, high school, I tried to get an internship, a summer internship, at any of the recording studios there, and, and, and they weren't about to have an 18-year-old with no experience you know, come and even clean toilets for them. So what I was, my mother knew somebody who, uh, uh, a higher up at Young and Rubicam, which was a big ad agency. And I just became an intern, uh, for a producer there. So I got to go to all the studios with him and be on sessions and just be a fly on the wall and go like, Oh, this is, you know, watch guys back then, uh, edit, um, quarter inch for, you know, overdubs for, 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 uh, you know, voice things. And that was, you know, and I was just soaking everything up like a sponge.
0: I did that myself. And I can tell you that I'm happy those days are gone.
1: Yeah. Oh, I I had to do one of the, one of the first uh, records I ever got hired to do was a comedy record that had been uh, recorded, you know, as many, many different uh, comedians uh, who used to perform at this thing called Uncabry and all of like, you know, a lot of people like Patton Oswalt and Bob Odenkirk—all people we know about now—but they had, uh, you know, maybe 120 minutes that had to be edited down to 74 for CD, and I had to do it all by hand. And the only—and the only machine that I could, you know, I, I actually had to do it on the on the two inch, which was, made it extra fun. But you know, I I don't miss it. But on on the other hand, I take pride in the fact that I was able to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So you're in LA and you're trying to get a gig.
1: Yeah, I'm and I'm kicking around and I'm playing in bands and I'm, 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 I'm re- rehearsing at this studio called Cole rehearsal. And I think this is 92 and the owner was selling it and it was, you know, when it wasn't a lot of money and, um, I was able to, uh, uh, you know, I have this, I have a wonderful supportive family who knows people, unfortunately none of them are in the music business, but one of them was at a bank. And I said, and I it was like, Hey, can you give me a small business loan to buy this company? And it wasn't a terribly big amount of money, and he was able to give it to me. And, and this was 92, and they didn't. it was much easier to get a loan back then. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it just happened to be a hub of activity in Los Angeles, music activity, and, and not only was everybody rehearsing there, everybody was doing their pre-production for their records there, and it wound up being a place that even, uh, you know, I think Rage Against the Machine wound up bringing in Uh, a bunch of equipment and recording their second record there. And, and so I just got to meet a lot of people who were making records and I became good friends with them. And I would go hang out at whatever studio they were at while they were making their records. And I got to know a number of engineers and I had a little before that I'd become really good friends with uh, a guy named Alan Hirschberg, who's no longer in the business, but he was an engineer and he became my mentor. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was it was type of that thing or that type of thing where, you know, it's like, well, if I can't gain entry, fuck it, I'm just going to make my own club.
2: <laughs> yeah, so,
1: right. uh, so I wound up in 94, I wound up building my own studio and uh, Alan was able to bring a number of the acts that he was working through. So and I was assisting him and I got to learn from working with him and then it was a cool thing because you know the first time that i'm like he can't make the session i'm being a first it's working with guys like mike landau um and guys of that level because that was that was alan's clientele where a lot of the the yo cats you know the the big session guys so I, i i was immediately getting to work with some really amazing musicians um and then it you know it's that thing that everyone does when they're starting out where like I had, a, I had some friends who were uh, had made a record and the the label wasn't into it they're like okay well we need some more songs but we're not going to give you any more money so I'm like I'll produce you um, and that was kind of how that you know I I, I just jumped in and uh, learned through trial and terror as, as uh, most of us do so that was that's how I got in <laughs> and part of me goes part of me goes you know I I, I wish that I had sort of come up through the studio system, like some of my other friends who I see have seen go on to these really amazing careers. But on the other hand, uh, there were some people that the way that I did it, I got exposed to and, and the information that I got exposed to, to through them, the knowledge, the taste, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad I did it my way and I wound up with my specific set of skills and ears and, and you know, that I might not have had if I were just uh, coming through the studio system and working with whomever.
0: I did the same thing. I I never really worked as a runner, you know, in the studio system. And part of me regrets that in a way, and another part of me does not. I think you probably feel the same way. It's like, well, I kind of missed some things that I I might have seen if I were there, but on the other hand, it worked out okay, so I guess it's it's all okay in the end.
1: Well, it's nice to hear somebody else have that same... Possible regret, but you know, I, I uh I think the only thing I, I, I feel like I missed out on is getting on that sort of escalator that I saw some of those people get out on. Because I, I still wound up I was fortunate enough to still be exposed to a number of other things. And like I said, I had so many friends who had record deals and I got to go. They were they were happy to just let me hang out day after day in the studio with them and, and you know, <laughs> be the cheering squad and, and, and watch the really great engineers they were working with.
0: How do you view yourself as a musician or a producer or an engineer? How do you look at yourself?
1: I mean, it's funny in the end, it all kind of comes down to being a producer. And that's what all my skill sets funnel into. Uh, I'm a musician and the studio is one of the instruments Mm -hmm. and you know, it's like recording. It's that combination of Science and art. So there, there is technology, but you, you know, it's like photography. You have to look at it, you, you know, with an with an artistic eye at the same time. And there's and there's a lot of opinion that goes into it. So it's not just it's not just this is scientifically how we get the sound. This is this is my opinion of what I want this to sound like. And this is what I'm going to do to make it sound that way. And um, the strange thing is, I, I don't get. I don't get asked to produce that much anymore, compared to how much I get asked to engineer, simply because bands are paying their own dime, you know, and yeah. no one's there to tell no one's there to tell them no, you cannot produce yourself. <laughs> and and uh, it used to be that you know someone else was giving you the money, and they go like, no, we're not letting you produce yourself. We know better. Um, and now everyone you know is it's like all actors want to direct. Uh, all you know, all musicians want to produce or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah.
1: And I just, and, and so my job now is to sort of try and keep people out of trouble as, as you know, but I'm, I'm letting them produce. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I have some friends who, uh, are, are great producers in their own right, but frequently they are just engineers like, like Nico Bolas for, you know, for instance, he's yeah. a great producer. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, and there's so many jobs that I see where he's just the engineer. And then I know that the producer appreciates the fact that, Hey, this is also, you know, I can bounce opinions and ideas off of him because he's, you know, he's done this as well in this seat. And, uh, and, and sometimes that's just the gig is, you know, I just keep my mouth shut until my opinion is asked for if I, or unless I see my, I see someone, really getting themselves into trouble. And then maybe I'll go, hey, this could be a problem.
0: You mentioned before that your opinion on how things should sound. I'm curious in how you developed that. Was there an aha moment where you went, okay, now this is the way people do it, but I like this way better. Is there something like that that happened to you?
1: God, I think, you know, it, it, it comes down to once again, taste. And that is if there's something that I try to be known for, it's it's you know it's taste and competency. You know I want to get there quickly, but I want to get there in a way that someone goes like, "Yeah, I like that sound." And I think if you just, I, I just really used to study records growing up. You know, I'd study the liner notes. I'd go like, I'd listen to these records. I go like, "Man, all these records I like. They're produced by this guy, Jimmy Miller. <laughs> you know, the Stones records, these Traffic records. Yeah, and 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 I noticed like, wow, he had a there's there was like a real opinion going on and, and there was kind of a, these are very different bands, but, but I noticed there's kind of a similar, you know, sound and opinion going on to them. And, you know, when the chorus happens, we're going to bring in the 12 string or this, and, and it's going to jump up a little bit, whatever it is. And I, I think it's kind of my opinion started being based on the records that I was listening to that I was getting turned on by. And just sort of taking note of, hey, this is you know this is not what a snare sounds like in real life, but this is what it sounds like on this record, and boy, it's a it's a cool thing. And trying to figure out how did they get that sound, and 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 then just asking yourself in the context of any particular record or production, is this the what's the appropriate sound? Yeah. yeah. For for uh, you know, and, and and I just and I just kind of base that on. I think, the music that, I, that I'm that i inspired by. So I think that's kind of where my opinion comes from.
0: What do you think was your big break? Do you feel you had one? I mean, there's a lot of people I talk to that say, I never realized it happened. It just sort of happened for me. But other people say, yeah, it was this particular moment. I did this record, and all of a sudden it changed. What was it like for you?
1: I think the big break for me was in 99, uh... I had a friend, or I still have a friend named Vicki Hamilton, and um, she had been Guns N' Roses' original manager. And then I think, you know, and then when they got signed to Geffen, she became an art person at Geffen, and now she was doing her own label. And uh, she, Rick Rubin told her that she should sign June Carter Cash to her new label and she asked me if I wanted to uh engineer it with Nick Lowe producing and then Nick Lowe wasn't able to produce and so her son or, or sorry uh, June's son John Carter Cash and I wound up producing it uh together and I and I engineered and mixed it and it was just one of those things I just you know I showed up I didn't mess it up and I noticed something really good was going on and I predicted I said while we were making the record I said this record's going to win a Grammy you know mm, and yeah. it did and that was in terms of you know that was that was a, 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 a you know career changing moment at least in terms of the fact that now I have this thing that at least someone's going to take my opinion a little more seriously yeah sure um, it you know I think I don't know how many copies it sold. And so it didn't really change my fortunes uh, uh, financially, but uh, it, it, it at least let me come to the table with a little more gravity. And I, and so I think that was kind of the moment where, you know, at least like I could enter the conversation and, and, and feel like less of an interloper and more like someone who's, who's, you know, can be taken seriously. and And, and that is sort of a that seems to be a lot of the, uh, the deal around here. Cause then when I sit down with guys who just have walls full of gold records and Grammys, you know, they, they treat you a little bit like a, uh, like a comrade and not less, you know, and, and less like whatever, just a, a looky loo or something <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Exactly. Well, was that a departure going to do June Carter cash for you just in terms of the style of music?
1: I'm not sure. I, you know, it was, that was, uh, that was a strange experience because I wound up, we recorded it in their cabin and, uh, I had to, you know, I got there and I'm like, Oh, okay. This is an interesting situation. And I just packed up as many decent microphones and mic prees as I could and, uh, brought them with me. And I wound up In a situation where I am recording in the same room as everybody onto blackface ADATS (laughs) with headphones, (laughs) and then I'm listening back on monitors, and then it's a funny story because because it's all acoustic instruments in a big wooden room. I wound up getting way too much of this low end that I didn't even I couldn't hear playing back because I'm listening in the same room with the same problem. (laughs) So when I got back to my studio, I was like, whoa. We will be doing a lot of high passing, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I, I like, but I, you know, I, I like working with bands and that was kind of what I do anyway. So it was, wasn't so much stylistically that we're doing this acoustic thing with a bunch of guitars and upright and everyone in the same room, you know, and no, and a lot of bleed, uh, that wasn't so much the challenges much as much as it was I think that I think the thing that was most different most different for me was having to work on ADAT because that was I've been working on two-inch most of the time yeah right that was that that was that was the challenge of, of, of uh, navigating the BRC not having a patch bay having a, a a at the time very ill Johnny Cash who's waiting for you to you know be behind the ADATS you know Uh, plugging in the XLRs to find the blank track, and he's like, I'm ready to go. Like, I need need to do this take now. (laughs) Yeah, wow. So that that was sort of the challenge.
0: Okay, so in looking at your credits, I didn't realize, speaking of of genres, you scan so many different ones. For instance, the the Caches, and then Rod Stewart, and then the Black Eyed Peas and P. Diddy. So that's a, a wide breadth of musical genres, musical types. Do you find it difficult going back and forth?
1: You know, not so much. It's The thing that I find difficult is in some of those situations, the difficulty is not the artist or the music. It's if you're working for a different producer and they have a different method and you have to keep track of what's this person's, uh, you know, like what's their form of insanity that I have to make <laughs> sure to do this particular thing or they're going to freak out on me. And that was, you know, and and, and, and more so than the music, it's, it's, you know, it comes down to the producer. I, I you know, did a Keith Urban session uh, earlier this year with a producer I'd never worked with. And then I, I had to learn, you know, and I'm like, oh, boy, he's doing something completely different than anybody I've worked with and I sort of had to, you know, figure it out. In the end, I don't know if I he was actually really happy with what I did or not cuz I didn't hear back from him again. <laughs> but it was, you know, that type of it was that type of thing where it 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 really it comes down to, you know, how, how is this producer approaching this and 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 more so than um more so than, you know, the artist or their particular type of music.
0: I'm curious, JJ, what was the different approach? And the reason why I asked it is I think you and I kind of come from the same mindset. And I'm just curious of you being thrown into something where all of a sudden it's, you know, way different that you have to think about it.
1: I'll give you a great example. On on those Rod Stewart records, um, I, you know, we're doing standards. And so I'm recording it like, you know, I would be doing a jazz record, basically. Yeah. And then what I realized was, oh, they're doing a pop record, <laughs> so I can't, I, I can't, you know, it's like, oh, this ribbon mic isn't going to cut it here. It's like I need to, you know, I, I need to make it snappy, uh, and and that was the thing, and, and and there was, and in that particular situation, because that producer was whatever, a little bit out of his mind, and and I had, um, and he had an assistant that was trying to translate and the translation was incorrect <laughs> that there was, for example, this was, this was a funny story. So I do some mixes and the assistant's like, Oh, the, you know, the, uh, this, the, the swirl on the, uh, uh on the brushes is, is too loud. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So, you know, I, I try to figure out some way to gate it and then the producer is just like, where's the swirl? I can't hear it. You know, uh, that type of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: So, and then, and then of course I get blamed for, you
0: know <laughs> yeah yeah of course
1: why is this wrong like
0: uh yeah 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 you've mentioned your studio a number of times let's talk about that i know you have a prodigious mic collection and guitar collection was that the impetus for the studio well let me go here instead what came first was it the gear that you had and then okay well we might as well do a studio or was it the studio and then oh let's kind of get this gear make it
1: work I think I had been trying to collect a little bit of gear here and there. Um, I think before I built the studio, I had, you know, I bought an old 3M two inch 16 and I had a little Allen and Heath console and a couple microphones, nothing to speak of. But I think when I built this studio, there was, it was just, we're going to set this much aside and figure out what we can get to, to populate the studio. And I think it was every time I would finish a record, I'd realize, okay, what didn't I have that I really would have liked to have had on this record? And I'm going to take some of the money I just I just made and go out and you know upgrade or or buy this or that. So uh, you know I started with I started with only a, you know a rack or two of gear and a couple microphones, and now I have entirely too much crap. <laughs> and some of it, you know, it's pe- people who won't admit to this are kidding themselves, but some of it is just fetishism. That's <laughs> 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 Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, tell me about your mic collection.
1: Well, <clears throat> I think it started out, I, I wasn't really, I didn't start off with any vintage mics. And then, uh, I became friends with Skipper Wise. Uh, and at that time when they were starting blue, they were re- they were buying some, um, East German uh, Neumann Gefells and some Lomo microphones and rebuilding them and putting in uh, uh, their own capsule and upgrading the circuit a little bit um, and 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 selling them and then Skipper said to me, hey, we've got these uh, U47s. You should get and I got one and it was you know it sounded great and I I hadn't had a lot of experience with U47s at the time and then I found out that not very much, if any of it, it had actually ever been an annoyment factory, but um, and so I wound up selling it and getting a real U47 and going like, oh wow, this is you know, and and I, I think that was where I started noticing like, wow, these things are you know, this is this is the first transducer in the in in the uh, in the signal path, you know, this is like a really important. Uh, aspect of capturing the sound, and they all do a specific thing, and they all have a different character. And again, this is where that opinion comes in of like, this is, you know, I think the vocal should have this quality, or it's going to, if I use this microphone over this microphone, it's going to sit in the track this way or that way. And um, I just started liking those options, and then I started noticing these things are getting more expensive and more expensive, and I Started, started to become a, like a, you know, a bargain hunter. And as I see a mic that I like going, oh, that's way under value. You know, I just grab it. Next thing I know, you know, people are selling them for three and four times as much as I bought it for. And, and I just wound up with a pile of them and, uh, I became good friends with Klaus Heine and, and, uh, he would share a lot of information with me and I learned to, you know, maintain them and sort of tweak them myself. Well,
0: I didn't know you did that. Wow.
1: Yeah, and David Bach was another guy who shared a lot of information with me. And, and you know, and these are guys sometimes when I, get, when I get over my head with something, I'm like, ah, you know, I'll just give it to them to fix. It. But for the most part, you know, a, a U47 or a 251, it's, they're, they're kind of like the, the 57 Chevys of, uh, of microphones where it's, it's a fairly simple circuit. And as long as you can, if you have general knowledge of how to read a schematic, they're easy to work on. You know, then some of the some of the other microphones get a little more complicated.
0: What's your favorite mic?
1: My favorite mic is a Neumann M forty nine. I think that's and and it's my favorite mic in the sense that it's the thing that is the most universal microphone that I can use on everything, and everything always sounds amazing through it. I I really really love a two fifty one, but it is so wrong on some voices or some instruments, and and the forty nine was just the thing that. Uh, you know, I can put it on a male singer, a female singer. You know, someone with a raspy voice, someone with an airy voice. I can put it on overheads. I can put it on guitar amps. I can put it on upright bass. I can put it on piano. On everything, it just sounds great. You know, and, and that's the that's the one I think that uh, they really nailed it on that. You know, string sections, you name it. It's, it's just a magic mic for me.
0: That's a unique opinion, and it's actually one I share because I've always found a great m49 just sounds so good and yeah. underappreciated definitely for the most part because everybody you know they they go with the the standards the uh 251s and, and 47s and 67s and stuff like that and and sort of overlook the m49 but i agree i always thought it was a wonderful mic if you can get them how many do you have
1: i have three of them
0: oh lucky you
1: and and, and yeah i know i had well i had one and then uh I saw somebody was selling uh a, a sequential pair of them original you know that 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 had been sitting in storage forever and so I sold that first one I had to buy the pair for what was you know i think I bought the pair for ten grand, which was a great i thought it was a great deal yeah and then but I really missed that early one that I sold it was you know it was it was uh an early one and a slightly different. I mean, we had different transformer, so it sounds a little bit different. I really missed it. And then my friend that I sold it to had to sell it again. So I'm like, please let me, let me buy it back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's, that that was the one that had just like the really fantastic vocal sound.
0: <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Tell me about playing with the who.
1: Oh, well that was, you know, that was a real fluke and a, and a very cool thing. Um, My good friend, Brian Key, who, uh is the keyboard tech for the who and well at the time he was keyboard tech now he i think he's teching a, a few other members of the band as well um and he wrote that or he co-wrote that book uh recording the beatles
0: which is fabulous yes
1: yes and uh, and and brian's brilliant and just one of my favorite people on the face of the earth and he uh and but he's a prankster and he's you know so he calls me up and he goes do you know how to Plug on, plug in an IEC cable. I go, yeah. I'm
2: like,
1: why? He's like, well, do you know how to, <clears throat> do you know how to plug in a Leslie? <clears throat> I say, yes. <laughs> you know, I own a Hammond. He goes, do you know how to turn a Hammond? I'm like, why are you asking me these questions? He goes, well, you know, um, would you like to take my gig for a few, uh, you know, for a couple shows? And I was like, oh, totally. And it turned out that he had to go do a book release party at Abbey Road for um, recording the Beatles, and he was afraid to. Uh, sub out his gig to one of the professional roadies because it's very cutthroat for that gig. The, the current drum tech is the son of the former drum tech because he stole it from his dad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. so he, he just was like, I think he just figured like, here's a very competent person who knows how to act around people and and I can you know and he'd really enjoy it because he knows that the Who are my favorite band and I can put him in this situation. And uh, then a week before that, uh, Rabbit Bundrick, the then keyboard player, his wife became very ill, and Rabbit uh, canceled being on the tour. And so they decided to elevate uh, Brian's position to being the keyboard player. And then Brian calls me and says, you know, this is what happened. Guess who's playing in San Jose? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, you are. Uh. What? (laughs) What? And I'm like, it's not my instrument. He goes, no, I've heard you. You're better than I am. I'm like, well, you just heard me play things that I've rehearsed or practiced. So, uh, I, you know, and I wasn't going to turn down an opportunity to play with my favorite band, even though it's not my best instrument. So I, I just, uh, I was, Rabbit kept a handy cam over his shoulder for every gig. And he gave me a, a copy of one of the videos. And I heard everything he played, and most of it's Hammond. And, and it was, you know. Uh, and I had, I had one bad cock up, uh, <laughs> uh, which was more of a timing issue because I got the, I, I didn't even get a rehearsal or a sound check with the band. Wow. I just had to go up in front of 16,000 people and play. And I, and, uh, yeah, I had, I got like an eighth of a beat off on one section that was very noticeable. And then I figured it out, but you know, that, that band, they they play with a loose tolerance of uh, there's there's a number of wrong notes that go on anyway so yeah so that was that was how that happened but the, the cool thing was uh, I was writing for EQ magazine at the time and I asked Pete if I could do a big interview with him um, about uh, recording uh, and he's a and he's just a recording fanatic you know he has several studios and he spends so much time in them experimenting and 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 uh recording and sort of based on that we sort of we we formed a friendship and uh i get to email with them frequently and visit whenever they're in town and that's kind of a dream come true and i have brian to thank for all of it so he's in my will
0: (laughs) yeah they're my favorite band too i really dig them I, i always have if they're on tv in any way i'm always there watching and unfortunately i haven't seen them live enough but i have them live but boy to get to play with them is awesome tell me about the synthesizer parts so like for it won't get fooled again and everything is that just a sequencer you hit the button and it goes
1: no they that's actually the uh, i think the monitor guy controls the feed for that it used to be um it's it's, it's uh, bobby pridden who has always sort of been their sound guy over the years who i think used to do front of house and now does the the monitors for them but he he used to have it on the Revox. And then play it, and then the Revox would break or something, and they'd all throw things at him uh, in the middle of the song. And now they just have it. I think they play it off Pro Tools or something. And and they were one of the first bands because I think that was 1970 when they were doing their what is it, the the Young Vic or the Old Vic or wherever they were they were were playing that stuff live. Yeah, they were playing to the they were playing to the pre-recorded stuff back then. So that was. They were kind of ahead of their time on that one,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely, oh, very cool. talking about a dream come true, that's awesome,
1: yeah, oh yeah, yeah, i just I just so so for uh Bob I just had to you know get the right voicing on the piano part
0: <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that you also written some soundtracks
1: I no, I haven't written any soundtracks, I think what happened is, uh if that was I've worked on you know. Uh, I've worked on some stuff that's wound up in soundtracks as an engineer or whatnot, both TV and film, but a number of years ago, um, uh, my girlfriend, uh, used to be on uh, the TV show, the West wing and the writer, one of the writers was making a documentary and he asked her to, do uh, a song for it. And, and we wrote it together and she's, she's actually, you know, she, she's a fantastic songwriter and she got nominated for an Academy award for, um, Best song for the the film Crash mm. uh, a number of years ago, and uh, and it was fun. So it, it was it was the type of songwriting that I really like, where somebody comes up with the melody and I get to and I get to you know uh, harmonically voice what, what's going on. Yeah, and, yeah. Just, and that was that was really fun. So if that that might be, I think that's my only uh, composing credit. Okay. <laughs> but I I have friends that. That's all they do is scoring, and part of me goes like, "Oh man, I, I would, you know, I'd like to see my girlfriend and my dog eventually." And I don't know that I ever get a chance to do that if I went into that world. Yeah, they 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 work around the clock, and I I I, I uh, you know I I commend them for how hard they have to work at those jobs.
0: I have a number of friends that do that as well, and when they're working, they're working really hard. you get compensated well you used to i'm not so sure that you get compensated the same as you did at one point in time
1: it's it's still pretty good um i have a couple friends who are crushing it so to speak and uh and there's some pretty good bmi checks they get out of it too yeah Uh, which is that's you know which doesn't really exist for people making records yeah
0: yeah no kidding no kidding what's the most fun thing that you do
1: I think there's those moments I love the moment where, where the song is still kind of an amoeba, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it hasn't really taken shape and someone has an idea and you're like, okay, we got to beat this into something. And that moment where it finally comes together and then you're listening and you're like, Oh my God, this is a great, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a great record now. This is, you know, there was like one little spark of inspiration And, uh, you have a number of the right people on it and everyone, you know, brought the right thing to the table and it just kind of, you know, meshed. I mean, this is, I, I, I can't speak uh, highly enough of, of great session musicians. And that is one of my favorite things is like when I, if I'm producing and I have an artist and I go like, you know, This song needs help, and if I bring this guy in, he's going to have the idea. He's just going to come up with the part that's really going to help glue this together. This will be the right, you know, drummer or whatever for that. And they'll bring the idea that, you know, like they'll make me look good as a producer. Yeah, yeah. Um, And 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 that for me is is the satisfying moment when, especially when the artist as the creator goes like, oh man, you we we really got, you know, like. I didn't know it was going to be this good or uh, I really, uh, you know, like just when they're satisfied that, that you help them sort of birth this uh, baby. And, and, and that's the part that I love.
0: Okay. What's your least favorite thing to do?
1: Um, Vocal comping <laughs> easily. Oh yeah, and, I know. And, 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 and everyone has that. It's like, if we're going to do vocals, if, especially if I'm working with another producer because I can, you know, I can comp a mean vocal and I can just cut through it and do it really quickly. There are some producers who want to have, like, they want to turn it into a group exercise and it takes forever. And, this is, and that's the point where I turn to my assistant and go like, Hey, you're driving. I'm going to go take the dog out. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and because, because I can't, it, it's, it's really hard for me to, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, this, this is, we're, 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 you know, this is somebody else going through their neurosis right now and it's going to take them too long.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's torture. It's, I know. Yeah,
1: and, and this is, this is part of you paying your dues. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to do this job.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very cool. JJ, last question. A little off the subject, but something that uh, I'm sure you can comment on. What's the best piece of business advice that you either received from somebody Or you learned along the way.
1: I think it's it's. I don't. I don't know if I would say it is business advice as so much as advice on how to be the business. Yeah. And I'm going to say it's two two things: stay teachable and be kind. Oh yeah. You know, if you're a good person and you're just a kind person, you show up because this is this is. everybody knows each other. Once you, once you kind of get to the inner sanctum, everybody knows each other and reputations go along and you've got to be some really successful hit maker for people to put up with your bullshit these days. Uh, and, 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 and people, you know, realize like who, who's a good person and who's not a good person. And, and people want to, you know, they want to be around good people and they want to work with them. And, and there's just, there's no reason to be shitty to people.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: just no reason. You know, and so that's and um and, and, and you will stand out as a good person. And just, you know, know your stuff, be competent, stay teachable and 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 put your ten thousand hours in and, and, and really try and learn it. That's that's about all I got.
0: To find out more about JJ, go to his studio website which is foxforce 5net dot net. That's Fox F O X Force F O R C E the number five it's all one word Fox Force 5 Net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.